Hello and welcome to this little podcast we call Two Chairs Talking. My name, as always, is Perry Middlemas and his name, my friend, as always, is David Grigg. It is Hello, indeed. David. Hi Perry, how's things? Feeling a bit better this time around? Yeah, a bit better this time. Pretty much um, over all those sort of lingering little effects. We had a, I had a sort of block sinus problem for about a week um, and a little bit of a cough and every now and again the cough just sort of comes back again but it's it's not one of those racking you know cold or fluid coughs it's just sort of like just a little cough that's all Uh, but that's it so um, I'm not feeling too bad at all so um, uh, I dodged a bullet with that one um, and uh, I shall put that down to the fact that I was uh, double vaccinated, double vaccinated, and one booster. Mm-hmm. I was due for the second booster, and I was sort of lining up about now, David. But mm-hmm. COVID oh, you, caught me. You have to wait now. Three or four weeks. Yeah, you got to wait. Um, I don't know. Three might even be six months. I'm not sure. Maybe yeah, three months. Three. Mm-hmm. three months, and so, um, and I'm going to be away uh, in uh, August. Uh, no, September. I'm going to be away from the end of August into September. So that means I won't be getting my um, next booster until um, October. But uh, but that's okay. And what about you? How have you been? I'm fine. You, you're, your talk about having a cough just reminds me of uh, the old saw that my father used to come up with regularly, which was, um, it's not the cough that carries you off. It's the coffin they carries you off in. Oh, ho, ho. very jokes. droll, very yes, droll. Yes. Yes. Oh, no, we're, we're fine. We're, we're still dodging the bullets. So. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Keep the masks on and um, uh, try and stay safe. Uh, you're better off not catching it, but oh, I sort of got, I've sort of got this feeling it's going to be inevitable. I think so too. Better yeah, to get it in the summer if you're going to get it. Better. Yep. I think that if you get it in summer, it'll clear up like a summer cold a lot quicker than a winter cold, which sort of hangs on and hangs on. But there we go. Never mind. Anyway, so that's enough of COVID chat. That. Yeah, that's right. Well, it can dominate your conversations completely if you're not careful. Yeah. And um, it's been dominating a lot of mine lately, of course, uh, because everybody wants to know how you're feeling. But generally, doing pretty well. So I um, can't really complain. Yeah, excellent. And if I did, nobody would listen. Well, that's so right. That's that's not. There we go. So shall we move on to some news, We should, David? we should. Okay, so on the weekend, and luckily enough, this actually got, um, uh, these were presented on the weekend and just snuck in because sometimes I think, um, I'm, I'm talking here of the 2022 Locus Awards, uh, which are the awards given out by Locus Magazine. Uh, sometimes I get the feeling that um, they may be given out on a Sunday, but it appears they were given out on Saturday. Uh, America, US time, so that means um, Sunday morning our time. So that was a day ago. So this is old news, David. Oh, old news, yeah. old news. But anyway, I'll give it to you anyway. All right. So uh, I'll give you the main high points. I won't go through all of them because there's way, way too many, and we'll put a link in um, in the show notes to um, these awards. We will. Now, don't forget that the Locus Award differs from the Hugo and the Nebula in that they have a number of novel awards which i shall go through they don't lump them all in together they do actually differentiate them into sort of sub genres and other categories you'll get there okay so the best sf novel was a desolation called peace by arcady martin uh that's up for a hugo award as well and in fact i'm currently reading that and um uh no i'll talk about that 
next time we talk about the novels. Yeah, I won't go into any of it at the moment, but um, uh, that is a um, a sequel to her previous novel, which was um, a memory called Empire, memory called Empire, which, which won, won the Hugo, the, which won the Hugo Award. Best fantasy novel, Jade Legacy by Fonda Lee. I must admit, I'm. Um, I haven't read uh, anything much of Fonda Lee's work, but uh, my daughter is a bit of a fan of hers, so it must be worthwhile getting in and have a look at. Best horror novel, My Heart is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones. Great title. Uh, horror novel, of course, Stephen Graham Jones. I have read some of his work, and he's a, um interesting literate horror writer, so interesting stuff. Best YA novel, Victory is Greater Than Death by Charlie Jane Anders. Don't know it. Best first novel, A Master of Gin by P. DeJelly Clark, which is also up for a uh, Hugo Award. So that's all of the novels. So you end up with SF novel, fantasy novel, horror novel, YA novel, and best first novel. And any one of the any novel can only win in one of those categories, which which I I'm a bit I'm a bit um, yeah I don't really like that terribly much. I mean because sometimes uh, some people's best some people's first novels can be a, an absolute cracker. Yes, and they don't pick up the best SF novel, but they pick up the you know best first novel, which I'm, you know it's not a denigration, it's not a lower level award, but you know it's. Does it seem like the top award, David? It's no. sort of You sort of think that the best SF novel or best fantasy novel would be the top award in those genres. Anyway, that's just the way they do it, so I'm not going to complain. Um, they can get on with it and do with it as they will, but at least it gives you a, a better range of um, genres or sub-genres to have a bit of a look at. Yep. Moving on, best novella, Fugitive Telemetry by Martha Wells. Very interesting that um, she withdrew this novel from the Nebula Award ballot. She made the ballot but withdrew it, as she is quite entitled to do so, and she doesn't appear on the Hugo ballot. Now, we won't know whether she would have made it and therefore withdrew until after the ceremony in Chicago in... um, It'll probably be right at the start of September. Uh... So I'm not entirely sure exactly what night the Hugo Awards are going to be on. But anyway, at the Worldcon in August, end of August, beginning of September. Uh, after that, we'll get all the details about um, nominations and voting. And we'll find out whether she withdrew it from the Hugo ballot as well. So as just to repeat, Best Novella, Fugitive Telemetry by Martha Wells. I really enjoyed that one uh, when I read it. Best Novelette, That Story Isn't the Story by John Wishwell. Not the one that either of us chose. No. Anyway. What do we lay, know? Well, what do we know? Uh, best short story, where Oak and Hearts Do Gather by Sarah Pinska. Yeah, out of a very poor bunch. Yeah, but that was a good one. Yeah, that it was a, a pretty it, good story. Was it's okay? a pretty good story. It's, out, of the, out of what was there, it was the best. It's subtle It's subtle and interesting, yes. That is true. Oh, okay, you're going to be like that. You're going to be like <laughs> that, David. I think I'm becoming super critical these days. Oh, you you're, might Where, where do you hear what I say about some of the novellas? Yeah, oh, anyway. okay, well, we'll get on to that a bit later. <laughs> uh, now, the most interesting thing from an Australian perspective is the Best Non-Fiction Award went to Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, Radical Science Fiction, 1950 to 1985, edited by Melbourne's Andrew Nettie and Ian McIntyre. So, uh, and uh, 
uh, our uh, sometime correspondent for this podcast, Lucy Sussex, actually has an essay in that collection. So um, that may well be the first non oh, no, no, I won't say because I haven't checked. I haven't checked. So anyway, it's really quite good to see that um, uh, this particular work has picked up the Best Nonfiction uh, Award at the Locus Awards, which is great. The rest of the list... Um, people can work their way through. Uh, they will, um, will. You'll be able to work your way through it when you have a look at the link um, in the show notes. Uh, the other bit of news: the 2022 Miles Franklin Award shortlist has now been announced, and uh, you're going to give us a run through, David. Just thought I'd read the read the titles, just so that you know we've got something to say. I don't know anything about any of these books. I have to say, you may know something about them. Uh, Perry, well, I know something about one of them. So the books are The Other Half of You by Michael Mohammed Ahmed uh, from Hatchet, Australia. Scary Monsters by Michelle de Kretzer, Alan and Unwin. Bodies of Light by Jennifer Down, Text Publishing. Uh, 100 Days by Alice Pung, Black Ink Books. Uh, I think that's a book of poetry, isn't it? Is that right? I, think oh, I don't know. Right. I really couldn't tell you. And Grimish by Michael Winkler. Uh, now, the interesting thing about Grimish is that it was self-published and uh, he couldn't get uh, any publisher to pick it up. But here it is. He self-published it and it's on the uh, the Miles Franklin list. So he's done mm, pretty well so with it. What does that tell you? Yeah, it's Persistence. an intriguing book, actually. Oh, OK. Per- Persistence is all, David. If you um, uh, feel as though you've got uh, something to say and you've got a book to publish, you um, just get it out there as best you can and um, hope for the best. But... You've got to be pretty damn good to actually end up on the shortlist so, um, uh, for the Moss Record Award. So, obviously, he's done a very good job with this. Indeed. Now, the winner for this particular award will be announced on the 20th of July. So, they're not really giving people very long to read the shortlist if you haven't read it already. But that seems to be the way with the Lord of Literary Awards. Um, they sort of assume that you'll either pick it up later or you will um, just read the winner later on, which is probably what we'll do, David. Yeah, I imagine so. Yeah, we'll try and pick that one up. Now, another piece of news regarding the Miles Franklin Award, um, not quite as good a news, is that um, the Miles Franklin Award winner Frank Morehouse um, has died at the age of 83. He died over the weekend. Uh, Morehouse won this award in 2001 for his novel Dark Palace. Um, I believe that uh, this is the second in his trilogy of books uh, regarding uh, a woman working at the League of Nations prior to the Second World War. Uh, I think that the first book, Grand Days, if I recall rightly, was deemed ineligible for the Miles Franklin Award because it didn't fit the criteria of examining Australians or Australian life. And then people said, well, the main character is an Australian and she's working overseas Wherever an Australian is, surely that's Australian life. Yeah, yeah that's for sure. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah, well, it is, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I don't see what the problem with that is. And I think that was there was a bit of a controversy about that um, early on. And um, that I won't say that it's weighed uh, his win in the, for his second novel, but let's just say that um, he came through later on, was on the shortlist and won. So. Have you read either of those? I've actually... No, I haven't read. I've got them. Yeah, I've, uh, got, I've got big, a copy of the second book, Dark Palace, the, but <laughs> it's been there for a, a while. Yeah, the big bricks of books I've yeah. to get to at some point yeah. if I could ever find the time to fit them in. Going back, we're having enough time fitting in all the Hugo Time Machine stuff, uh, David. Yeah, exactly. To, to be able to do... Um, um, to be able to get on to anything else. Yeah, indeed. Um, 
Also, uh, Frank Morehouse, um, uh, in addition to his Mole Franklin Award win, uh, his novel 4017 won the Age Book of the Year Award and the Australian Literary Society's Gold Medal in 1988. <laughs> so he had a long career, uh, and a lot of people are saying they're very sorry to um, have lost him over Indeed. the weekend. Anyway, all go. things must pass, which Indeed. is a bit, of a bit of a pity. So that's about it for the news and for the general early morning chatter, David. So, Indeed. Um, uh, that's that's good. So we move on to our major topic for this particular week, which is an examination, or from our perspective, of the 2022 Hugo Awards, and in particular, the Hugo Award final, the finalists for the Hugo Award for Best Novella. Yep. Uh, for 2022. So these are stories published in 2021. And these are stories also that fit between 17,500 and 40,000 words. So in, if you don't like the, the, the name novella, think of it as a short novel. It fits in between those sort of longer short stories and the novel. So mm. it fits into that, into that category. Sure. Very, um, very popular in the science fiction and fantasy and horror genres, much more so than most other genres. So there's a lot of people writing in there. And I, I actually like the length for um, uh, science fiction and fantasy writers because I think uh, it keeps them focused on their on what they're attempting to achieve. And they if they stick to that, you get some of their best writing. They're not going off into fluff, sort of trying to expand a 250-page novel into 600 pages, which so many of them seem to want to do. Mm. These are in the sort of uh, 60 to 120-page uh, range, thereabouts, maybe 140, but, you know, short novel. Anyway, so I'll kick off and All I'll right. go first. The first one I'm going to talk about is A Psalm for the Wild Built by uh, Becky Chambers. I have to... Um, Apologise if at any time I mispronounce uh, the title of this. For some reason, you know what happens when you get those things into your head like an earworm. I kept on trying to say this was a psalm for the well built, but it's not. It's the wild, <laughs> the wild built. built. Mm. So I have to slow myself down and make sure that I say the, the correct title here. And I'm not trying to be funny. It's just that sometimes things just get into your head and you get the name wrong. So. That's it. Anyway, so this is also a finalist for the Nebula and Locus Awards, which of course didn't win the Locus Award, as we as we know. And it's the first of this author's new series under the overall title of Monk and Robot, which you will be able to figure out why after I give you a bit of a, a rundown. So, um, sibling main character of this particular novella, sibling Dex, um, is a ungendered monk who, after some time in a monastery, decides to leave and start um, a new work as a wandering seller of teas on this particular planet on which he lives. Now, I have to use the, the pronouns they, because as I said, this, is, uh, this person is uh, ungendered and they talk to they use the pro pronouns um, pronoun they. So they struggle for a while, but gradually become an expert in their new crafts. It takes some time, but they gradually get there. Yet they still feel a sense of unease all the time that they're basically doing this work. Then one day they decide to take a step off their usual scheduled track and journey into the forest wilderness to a distant ruined building that they had heard about and thought, well, I'm close, let's, let's go, go and have a bit of a look. And along the way, they encounter a robot by the name of Moscap who has decided to reacquaint itself 
and also robot kind with humans after the robots had developed a form of consciousness and left humans a few hundred years previously. So this is a society in which uh, humans or humans or human-like people on this planet had uh, lived in coexistence with robots, but at some point the robots had developed um, consciousness and had decided that um, they were going to live on their own and leave the humans to, them, to, to their own devices. Fair enough. Who can blame them? No, who can blame them, especially the way things are going lately. And so this is a, um, this is a quiet, unassuming little novella about the two about the journey of two two different beings, very different beings, you know, one one cybernetic and one organic, on the search for some end, understanding of themselves and of each other, because they're both coming to the realization that they're seeing the other kind for the first time in hundreds of years. And but there's also in this particular novella some of the best writing that I think Becky Chambers has done since her debut debut novel. Although I think there are some structure devices along the way early on that might put some readers off. I got myself a little bit very confused about what was going on in the early parts of this. But it all comes together near the end, and you can see that it is a setting up of a longer series of of stories uh, that, well, I think we're probably going to go okay. Um I gave this one 3.8 out of 5. It's not my absolute favourite for um, of, uh, of this particular list, but I enjoyed it, and uh, it was a pleasant read. David? Yeah, I, 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 my notes say that I thought it was a pleasant enough story, but it, it seemed to me to take a long time to go anywhere, and uh, an awful lot of it is, is these two characters just sitting around talking. Which True. can be interesting, but but mainly, mainly as far as I'm concerned, they're they're exchanging, you know, meaningless platitudes. So I, w- I wasn't very impressed by it. it. It's all right, pleasant enough, but it didn't uh, didn't much appeal to me. The, the other thing about that um, pronoun business, I mean, it's, it's a it's a a tragedy really that that English no longer has any. Oh, if, we're not sure we ever had, but it doesn't have any gender-free pronouns, hmm. and we, any attempts to introduce them seem to have failed. Because this they and them thing is is fine. I'm hap- I'm perfectly happy with people using that, but it can get confusing. And there hmm. were a couple of spots in this where we have things like um, you know they they head off somewhere. Okay, is that, is that Dex by two? himself, or is it Dex yeah. and Moscap? You know, it, it, it's just it's a problem with English. Yes. Um, so it's not really the author's fault, but it, it, you've got to be very careful, I think, um, uh, knowing that that's an issue. And uh, there were a couple of spots in that that I, I got I'm thinking, what does she really mean here? So anyway, taking a mild digression at that particular point, do you think that problem occurred when? English decided to do away with gendered um, gendered nouns. So Probably. instead of I mean, you know, like the French having um, the river and the table and the chair all having yeah, either been feminine or masculine. Yeah. Do you think that was the problem? Because I know that the Germans also have a um, they have a neutral, a neutral they, they have, have a neutral, neutral one probably, as well. So probably. they have three. Yeah. French have two. We have none. Uh, and I wonder whether that's it. But I, I don't know whether the French have got a... I don't think they have a genderless... An no, pronoun either. No, I don't, don't believe so. Neither is Italian. Um, but but uh, it, it's it's awkward, yeah, yeah. 
anyway, but there we are. Mm. We, we're stuck with what we've got. Well, I hope somebody solves it and comes up with something because, yes, I'm, look, same as you. That's when I had to basically say there when I was reading my notes about they. I thought, now, hang on a minute, because it's been a while since I wrote those notes. Am I dealing with one person or two people here? Yeah. But then I realised, no, it's just the one. Mm. And that's the difficulty. It's the same pronoun being used in general, in general terms for multiple people mm. and... In this instance, Singular for one person. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Anyway, mm. never mind. We're stuck with what we've got. We are. Hopefully things will, will move. Mm. All right. Well, I'll move on to my first one. Uh, and I fear I'm going to be seen as being overly critical here. So bear with, bear with me and, and just, you know, take this with several grains of salt because I'm maybe I was just in a really critical mood. But anyway. So the one I'm going to talk about is Across the Green Grass Fields by Shauna Maguire. And this is uh, another standalone novella in Maguire's series, which is called The Wayward Children. I've quite liked most of the books that I've read in the series, but I'm continually wishing that she'd expand them into novels. You talked about the novella being a perfect lens for some things, but her books always make me feel unsatisfied. I just wish she would extend them a bit more, go into a bit more detail, um, you know, handle things a bit differently. Anyway, this this particular one annoys me a lot <laughs> because <laughs> I think it's a seriously missed opportunity to do something really good and, and she, she falls at the at the gate. Um, and there's, I'm going to be giving spoilers, so if you don't, if you want to read the story and and uh, then t- you know skip to the next chapter in the podcast. So across the green grass fields, the book starts very strongly with a character called Regan, and we first meet her as a seven year old who is, she says, perfectly normal by every measurement she knew. She has a number of good friends, but when one of them, Heather brings a garter snake to school. Regan's other best friend, Laurel, reacts in disgust. This, according to Laurel, isn't normal. That's not what girls do. And, of course, Laurel is the dominant one in the, in the group of kids, and everyone ha- everything has to be the way that Laurel sees it. Laurel determines what is normal. Laurel's a bully. So Heather is quickly pushed out of the circle of friends, and she's literally defriended by everyone in the group, even by Regan. Uh, so th- I thought this was there was a strong message here that, that about how cruel children can be to other children and how any sign of difference can be seized upon by children to mock and exclude those who don't fit. But Regan desperately wants to fit in, so she goes along with Laurel's bullying. However, a few years later, Regan starts to question her parents about why she isn't starting to develop breasts or start menstruating like her other friends. Her parents tell her, reluctantly tell her, while admitting that they should have told her much earlier, that she is transgender. She has XY chromosomes, which would normally make her male, but she also has androgen insensitivity, which gives her female genitalia. Because, as, as you may know, the female form is the standard human form. It's we males who are the deviants from the norm. But her parents tell her that when she's 16, she can start to have hormone treatments which will allow her to more fully develop female characteristics. And so by this stage, I had built up considerable empathy with Regan and her plight. And wisely, Regan tells her secret to Laurel, 
who of course, as you'd expect from her previous behaviour, rejects Regan with shock and horror and runs to tell everyone else that Regan is a boy pretending to be a girl. I, th- I thought all oh, this was really very solid, interesting stuff, which I think I think could have been the basis for a strong novel, developing Regan's character as she deals with her situation and exploring the themes of bullying, identity and transphobia. Unfortunately, that's not what happens in the book. Instead, after her disastrous conversation with Laurel, Regan runs away from the school grounds and she sort of wanders through a wood. And while she's wandering through this wood, she stumbles through a magic portal into another world, the Hooflands. Apparently, Regan has always been fond of horses and the Hooflands is a world full of centaurs, unicorns and other mythical creatures. So, to me, the story then just degenerates into a really lacklustre Girls love horses, fantasy. Even the adventure that she has in this world ends up, I thought, very limply. There's no real tension built up at the crucial points, which was a, criti- a criticism I had of uh, one of um, one of Maguire's other books, uh, which I can't now remember the title of. But she, she she doesn't seem to handle building up tension very well. Anyway, you, you get through this this sort of fantasy adventure, and at the very end of the book, several years after she has passed through the portal with Regan now having reached the age of 16, she finds herself pushed out of the Hooflands and back into her own world. In trepidation, she approaches the door of her parents' house, and that's where the book ends. So, there's no attempt here to deal with what Regan's life might be like now she's back in the real world, how she might deal with her ambiguous gender, what life might hold in store for her, what difficult decisions she might have to make, or even anything about how her parents have managed to cope for more than five years, all the time presumably thinking that their only child is dead, and what their reactions are when she returns. We don't get any of that. So I, I just I say maybe I'm being hypercritical, but I can't help thinking that Regan's passage into the magical world of the Hooflands is a complete dodge by both the character and the author to avoid dealing with the difficult and important issues which are raised by the very promising start of the book. I thought it was a badly missed opportunity, and it made me cross. <laughs> you know, I don't think I don't think one should raise these sensitive issues unless you're going to deal with them honestly. After all, real transgender children don't have the opportunity to escape into a fantasy world. So, yeah, I said I'm probably I'm probably getting too stuck in to her on this, but it, I was just disappointed. It could have been so much so much more. Yeah, I kind of understand what you're getting at now that you've articulated it in that way. I like these series of stories and I can understand why a lot of other people do as well but I also take your point that just as things start ticking on she basically gives her a lifeline and throws her out and then she doesn't really have to worry about that problem anymore Mm -hmm. and neither neither does the reader and it then does become a sort of a fantasy world that she starts to live in and starts to um, uh, enjoy living in and want to live in uh, because it's it's all relatively easy for her, except when she finds out that she has a quest that she has to undertake. But but don't you agree that even that quest is very low temperature, really? Oh yeah. I mean, there's just, there's no real scary bits or tension no, or really. no, no sense no, no, that no, she no, might no, fail no. in that. No, that's right. I mean, yeah, that's yeah, that, that is a good point. That um, as you say, the tension's not dramatic. Tension just doesn't really build up enough. Mm. Um, you. you all the time you have this feeling, yeah, she's going to get through this without any problem. She's just going to sail through this without any difficulty and coming out the other end. And the only 
level of interest that you've got is that um, uh, how does she do it? Um, what's going to happen to her at the other end? And then you get that point where the dramatic tension does build as she gets back to um, back to home again, and then the story stops. So it's, I don't know, is it a means of um, uh, maybe the author does know how to build it up, but then doesn't know what, what to do with it? Or maybe gets um, a little bit worried about where things are heading. Are we going to have a sequel to this? Because she has, um, uh, Maguire has done sequels to her other um, yes, she has. There's a couple. Other stories, but the other stories have all seemed to be rounded off mm. at least reasonably well and gone a little bit further. So if they've gone into another world and then come back again, you see them after they've come back and they're very distressed. Um, but we're not getting that here. Uh, we're basically getting her turning up at the house and then that's it. Mm. So, yes, I don't think this is the, the strongest of the novellas in this particular series. So this is number six, so there's been a few. Uh, nor do I think it's the strongest of the um, novellas here. Definitely not. Uh, um, I think, yeah, in some ways, this may... It's got some good things going for it, but um, I take your criticisms uh, to heart, and I think that there's a fair bit that you say which is perfectly correct, and that um, it's, a, it's an opportunity lost here. Mm. Very much so. Which is sad, really. Yep. There we go. All right. Okay. Moving on. Let's not dwell too much on these things. Otherwise, we'll just You'll spend all our time talking about the one. All day. Yeah. Um, my next one that I'm going to be talking about is Fireheart Tiger by Elliot de Bodar. Now, I'm a bit of a fan of Elliot de, de Bodar, and so do a few other people must be, because this was also a finalist for the, uh, the 2022 Nebula and Locus Awards and was a winner of the 2022 British Science Fiction Association Award. So got a number of um, uh, nominations here. Elliot de Botard, uh, Bodard continues to impress this new novella set in a fantasy world inspired by pre-colonial Vietnam. So you're getting a bit of a look at something that um, really you haven't seen very much of, if at all, in the modern Western fantasy genre. So we're moving away here from fantasy settings which are Middle England, Tolkien-esque. You're starting to get a few little bits and pieces that are coming up from other settings, which is a damn good thing because they give you another set of eyes. It gives you another another world in which to have a uh, have a look at and see characters walking around in and just to see things that are different. And that's 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 the thing that we're after here. We don't want to don't want to read we don't want to read Tolkien-esque stories time after time after time we just we do want we want variety well i do not everybody else but i want i want i want some variety and uh de Bodar is one of these people that is actually uh, providing this now the main character here is tan t-h-a-n-h i think it's tan is who's the daughter of the empress bin hai she's been sent away to the neighboring country of ifteria ostensibly as a hostage, but also to learn the ways of their court and their people. Um, her mother has put her over there to sort of say, well, this is the idea of the um, one of the daughter, one one of your children going to live in a neighbouring kingdom uh, and brought up by then so that there's a fostering of relationships between the two kingdoms, so there's king kingdoms. So it's less likely that uh, the two two things will uh, two kingdoms will go to war 
because we've got somebody on the inside that knows both sides. But the Empress here has got a long game that she's trying to play by putting um, putting her daughter there, which you find out a bit later on. Now, years later, Tan returns home um, to act as a political advisor for her mother. Her time there as a hostage is up and she's gone back. But her mother is rather impressed that Tan did not become the powerful young woman she wanted. Um, and as a result, she tends to treat Tan as the least of her children, um, not looking on her with favour at all. But Tan's got a bit of a problem. She's got a fire sort of follows her, a bit like um, uh, Stephen King's character, the Firestarter. Um, the castle, so the castle in which she lived in Evteria burnt to the ground unexpectedly. Um, and now small fires are breaking out in her mother's palace as well. Um, so Tan finally gets a chance to redeem herself in her mother's eyes when a delegation arrives from Efteria, which includes the Princess Eldris, a young woman who Tan had been involved with previously, involved with romantically and sexually previously. And so against the backdrop of colonial political power games, Dabodar explores the relationship between the two young women and how this impacts both them and their two countries. I don't think she fully lands the ending with this. Uh, I wasn't sort of overly convinced that she had nailed it properly. Um, but it, the whole setup is interesting. Um, it's different. Uh, she writes well, and she's certainly um, an author that. Uh, you need to watch if you're interested in this sort of uh, genre and this style of writing with these um, fantasy worlds set in different world structures. So I I enjoyed this. Again, it's not my uh, favourite of the whole lot, but uh, I yeah I thought it was all right except for the ending. I was a bit a bit disappointed with the way she didn't quite get that quite right. What about you, David? <laughs> Well, I didn't like it at all. <laughs> it's going to go to the bottom of my of my uh, my list on the ballot. Um, why don't I like it? I, I'm I'm interested. Yes, I like the uh, stories set in in uh, different cultural backgrounds. I, for example, I very much enjoy uh, one of the novels that's uh, that we'll talk about uh, next time, uh, which is set in in China. But this one, I. I just thought this was tedious. I, I really had to push myself to finish it. There's too much talk about all these political machinations between these two countries and the negotiations they're having, and uh, and I didn't, I wasn't convinced by the love story that sort of goes on there, and uh, no, I couldn't couldn't get interested in it. I couldn't get feel any empathy with any of the characters. No, not for me. Sorry. That's okay. Yeah. Oh, the one thing I did want to say about it is that, uh, yes, it's all set in this kind of alternate Vietnam, but it's quite interesting. It was interesting to me, I made a note, that there don't seem to be any males in this world at all. Mm. Mm. Um, all the all the, uh, the Empress's daughters are, are, are the, the soldiers and leaders of, of armies and things. And uh, th- there's only one reference I could find all the way through where one character is described as wearing men's clothes, so presumably they do exist, but they're obviously of no importance whatsoever and kept out of sight. Okay, that's fine. It's just, it was interesting to note that all the characters that we come across are, are female. Fine, no worries, but... 
But is but is that an interesting? She didn't feel the need to explain it. Well, she didn't need to explain it. No, that's fine. But anyway, so it's just a turning of the table. Sort of. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a book I'll be turning about talking about later on, which has absolutely no female characters in it, and they don't make no ex- they make no explanation as to why that is the case. Oh dear, well, that's a bit sad. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, there we are. Anyway, all right. So what am I rolling on to? I'm rolling on to Elder Race by Adrian Tchaikovsky, which I liked. This is the first one I've liked, I think, in the ones I've talked about so far. Um, so this starts out as what what seems to be a work of fantasy. Um, but in fact, it's quite a clever playing out of Arthur C. Clarke's dictum that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So we start out, the book, the, the, the story starts out with uh, a character called Liness, who is the fourth daughter of the queen of a place called Lanisite. And she's, when we come across her, she's climbing up a mountain uh, with a companion to reach an ancient tower, the Tower of Nyargoth Elder. Here dwells, or once dwelt at least, a mighty wizard. And Liness is, trying to, is going there to see if she can recruit his aid to fight a, a demon or a scourge afflicting, afflicting the land. And when she and her companion Escher Freemark, that's the full name of, of her companion, Escher Freemark. When they arrive and they get to the gate of this place, uh, Liness is told that the wizard is sleeping and uh, she's denied the right to wake him up unless, that she, unless she's able to prove that she's descended from ancient queens. Now, this is where we first start to suspect that we're not dealing with fantasy but science fiction because she puts her finger in, in a sort of slot in, in the wall and it takes a prick of, you know, pricks her finger and takes a drop of blood. And the, this automated guardian of the tower take, takes a sample and presumably does some sort of DNA test. And uh, she passes the test and Nyargoth Elder is, is wakened up. Now the story alternates between the viewpoints of Nyargoth and Liness. And we find out that Nyargoth, or Nya for short, isn't really a wizard at all, but he's, from his point of view, but he's a scientist. He's an anthropologist who came to this planet with with a team centuries ago to study the people and the culture there. And he's been in a form of deep sleep from which he awakens periodically. The other scientists who were on the team left the planet a long time ago, um, leaving him behind, but he was supposed to have been contacted by them and relieved of his duty, which hasn't happened. He starts to suspect that his culture has actually collapsed. And so the story becomes a clever playing out, I thought a very clever playing out of these two different viewpoints. Naya, who is consumed with guilt that he's interfering with something he was only ever meant to study. And Liness, who's baffled by why this magic, this powerful wizard isn't blasting people with magic spells. So the author, the author has a, a light touch and I, there were moments of real humour in, in all of that. I don't, I don't think there's any real need to go into any more detail, but the, the story plays out well as these two characters struggle to understand each other while defeating the threat, which, uh, which is an interesting threat, actually, which uh, caused Liness to travel to Nia's tower. Um, I liked it a lot. How about you, Perry? Uh, yeah, I did as well, and I agree with you on the idea that um, uh, the, the different way the two main characters see the world and see the same events one through the lens of superstition and um, uh, quasi-beliefs about 
you know, what goes on with the world and the other one through science. And uh, you get exactly the same sort of view of um, incidents told completely differently. And it's sort of quite, it's, it, is, it is quite amusing when you read it and go, oh, that's what was going on, yeah. uh, you know, um, uh, because you sort of sympathise more with the scientific point of view. But you can see that if you look at it from the other side, uh, it does seem, seem like uh, superstition and magic are ruling the world. There's even a little little passage in there where where there, there are two parallel texts. Do you remember that bit? Yeah. The, the two parallel texts on the left hand side is what Nier is his his saying in, in his scientific language, and on the other side is what Linus is hearing. <laughs> it's completely different. <laughs> it's completely that different. was that was really quite uh, cleverly done. Th- that was really quite cleverly done, and it's uh, uh, it just is that uh, exploration of as you say, um, you know, advanced technology is looking like magic. Uh, Tchaikovsky is a very interesting writer. Yeah, this is the first um, thing of his I've read. Oh, we should try and check out a few mm. more things on them. Yeah, I will. He has written some. He has written stuff in uh, hard fantasy, if you like, and hard hard science as well. Mm. Uh, and he's written some very very interesting books. Mm. Uh, first contract uh, communication uh, with aliens. Um, lots of stuff that he's done, uh, and he's. He ranges quite widely as well. And so obviously what he has here is something that's sort of crossed over between mm. the two and he sort of bought his tool set in from both sides and brought them all in together and put them, put them side by side to see how they go. And it works. And it works pretty well. Yeah, I, I, I must admit I did enjoy this. And the more I probably think about it, my little uh, qualms or quibbles about what um, uh, might have gone on with the, um, uh, with the, uh, with the novella, sort of fade away, really, and it's sort of... Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's not my favourite, but it is... Um, mm. uh, it's uh, it's a good one. Okay. It's a good one. Good, good. All right, well, I'll move on to um, A Spindle Splintered by Alex E. Harrow. Alex E. Harrow's written um, uh, a few novels, A Thousand Doors... Um, uh, Thousand Doors, Thousand of, Doors January. of January. Oh, Gen- yeah. Thousand Doors of January mm. was an excellent one. Another portal fantasy. There seem to be a lot of those around at the oh, moment. Yeah. And this is one as well. Uh, so um, it just seems to be that uh, portal fantasies have been having this um, thing at the moment. Mm. There's a new um, television series on, was it on Netflix called Night Sky, which is also a um, portal fantasy of a sort. But uh, that, it just seems to be. In the air at the moment, David seems to be all over the place because all of those um, um, uh, Sean and Maguire ones are portal fantasy. So sure. anyway, so but this this novella by Alex Harrow um, is a reimagining of a classic fairy tale. Uh, another one because there's been a few of those being done as well as people going in and sort of re reworking the fairy tales and breaking them apart and putting them back together again. And this one deals with uh, the fairy tale of Sleeping Beauty. And it tries to imbue that uh, fairy tale with modern sensibility and style. Now, our main character here, Zinnia Gray, um, is dying. She knows she's dying. She has an incurable disease which um, uh, threatens to kill her before she is 22 because nobody that's ever had this disease has lived beyond the age of 22. And so she just, as she comes up to her 21st birthday, um, just believes she's only got a maximum of a year to live and she's just going to live every day of it as best she can. Now, on her 21st birthday, her best friend, Charm, just Charm, throws a Sleeping Beauty-themed party in an old tower, complete with spinning wheel, because Zinni has been very fixated with the, with the whole uh, concept of 
uh, Sleeping Beauty throughout uh, throughout her life. And Chalmers just basically said, oh, well, here we go. Let's just have a big um, theme party uh, of Sleeping Beauty with, as I said, a spinning wheel. But Zinnia pricks her finger on the needle and, as things these things happen in these types of stories, is dragged into a foreign world by a character or a young woman called Primrose, who really is a fairy tale princess about to suffer the state, the seeping beauty treatment. And she doesn't want to. Uh, she doesn't want to be put to sleep for all this time and wait for a prince to come along and kiss her and wake her up. She's not having that at all, not interested. Uh, you don't know why, but you find out a bit more later on. Uh, and so together, Zinnia and Primrose start working to save Primrose from the curse and return Zinnia to her own world. This is, um, I, I like this, I like this a lot. Uh, it's told with uh, Harrow's signature style that's funny, romantic, dark and insightful, and supposedly is uh, the first in a proposed series of novellas, one that I'm going to be following and watching. Mm. There's a second one coming. Yeah, the second one coming out already, uh, and uh, I, I really enjoyed this. I enjoyed this one a lot, and this one is actually my favourite of the whole lot. Okay. Uh, um, it's got a lot going for it, I think. Uh, I like the idea that people can go back and get those um, uh, story archetypes, which are the ones told in, um, in fairy tales, and break them apart and have a look at them and put them back together again or not uh, as they see fit. And I think she's done a pretty good job with this one. Yeah, I, I like this a lot too. Uh, and uh, yeah, it would be it's pretty high on my list. I mean, this kind of thing can be done badly, but but she's done it very well. And this this... This 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 humour, this sardonic sort of humour, which runs all the way through it, and uh, you know, it's it, it, for for example, the, the the story opens, which I thought was this got me in straight away. Sleeping Beauty is pretty much the worst fairy tale any way you slice it. It's aimless and immoral and chauvinist as hell. Uh, you know, it's, just, it's good stuff. Yeah, she then no, goes I, on to t- she then goes on to tell you about one particular variation of it and said, "Don't look it up." So I thought, oh, I've got to, I've got to go look it up. Oh, no, I didn't do that. <laughs> so I did. I didn't do that. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's quite a an interesting archetypal story that has appeared across a lot of different cultures, yeah. all the way you know with different variations on it. And she's picked up on that and runs with it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the other thing I liked about it too was the fact that her fo- her mobile phone still works when she gets into the into the other world, and and she she said she's, she's getting all these. You know what the f- messages from from her friend Charm. Yeah, you know, what happened to you? Where did you go? And she's sort of te- texting back. You know, sorry, babe, I got spider versed into a fairy tale. You know, <laughs> well, then like she has to worry about the fact she's running out of power. Yeah, and that's why no she's running out of charge yet. all the time. Yeah, it's, it's I, I liked it a lot. Yeah, too. Yeah, not not my top, which you'll find out about. But uh, I I did uh, I did like it. It's probably number three on my list. I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, so what have we got next? Uh, me, is it? I'm going to talk about what is my favourite, is The Past is Red by Catherine M. Valente. Now, this was, she's an interesting, she's, this is the first, these are the first stories of her I've read, but it's interesting that the short story that she wrote, I hated, the novelette she wrote, I loved, and this novella, I think, it's the best of the bunch, as far as I'm concerned. I like, I really like it. I'd, I'd be glad to to read it, you know, several times. So, what sucked me in immediately was the story's first paragraph. My name is Tetley Abednego, and I'm the most hated girl in Garbage Town. 
I am 19 years old. I live alone in Candlehole, where I was born, and I have no friends except for a deformed gannet bird I've named Grape Crush, and a motherless elephant seal cub I've named Big Bargains, and also the hibiscus flower that has recently decided to grow out of my roof, but I haven't named it anything yet. I love encyclopedias, a cassette I found when I was eight. I love plays by Mr. Shakespeare or Mr. Webster or Mr. Beckett, Lipstick, Garbage Town, and my twin brother, Marushan. Now, to me, that's clearly a conscious homage to the first paragraph of Shelley Jackson's wonderful novel, We've Always Lived in the Castle, which just the first sentence of is, My name is Mary Kathleen Blackwood. I'm 18 years old and I live with my sister Constance. And then she goes on about things she likes and things she doesn't like the same way as the author is doing here. Anyway, regardless of whether that's a real connection, I feel it is. Regardless of that, we immediately have this interesting, quirky character, Tetley, who's named after the teabag. And we know that she lives in a peculiar place and that she's hated by everyone in town. So there are a lot of similarities in this to to Mary Cat, the narrator of Shirley Jackson's novel. The strange place called Garbage Town, we discover, is a huge floating mass of rubbish floating on the ocean. It's big enough and solid enough for people to live on. Quite a lot of people live on. Climate change has flooded the entire world, it seems, and all all of what remains of humanity lives on these floating masses like this one. Now, at some point in Garbage Town, there's been the great sorting in which the inhabitants have sorted out the massive junk into logical groupings. So Tetley, for example, lives in the region called Candle Hole, where all the candles in the garbage were collected and massed together. So then we have to figure out why Tetley is the most hated person in Garbage Town and how, how she deals with that. It seems that sometime in the past she's done something terrible, or at least some, something that everyone but her thinks is terrible. And I don't actually want to go into too much detail about the, the plot such as there is. It's really a character-driven thing. Um, there's obviously a strong environmental message here. The survivors refer to the previous generations who wrecked the climate as simply the fuckwits, not simply for their reckless burning of fossil fuels, but also because of the greed and wastefulness of the vast quantities of excessive stuff they manufactured, much of which has ended up in Garbage Town. And yet, Garbage Town, where Tetley was born, which is the only place she's ever lived in, is, she says, the most wonderful place anybody's ever lived in the history of the world. So, Tetley, like Mary Cat in Jackson's novel, is a fascinating character whose sad story you quickly become invested in and you want to follow through her many sufferings and occasional joys. I suppose what made her so interesting to me is that despite all the bad things that happened to her, she faces everything with courage and she's able to remain positive and take pleasure in what she what she has left. I thought it was really well written and uh, there's plenty of wry humour and occasional pathos, such as with the sad AI device that Tetley accidentally awakens in the second part of the, of the story which at first thinks that Tetley is the, uh, the device's previous owner, a teenage Korean girl, and the device is eventually devastated when it finally learns better. So, yeah, I, I, I liked it a lot. I mean, there are things wrong with it, which I'm sure Perry will point out, but, uh, I, yeah, it's, it's my favourite out of the lot. So what was, what's your take on it, Perry? Well, Anita said this is a sort of follow-on from her first story about Tetley, which is The Future is Blue. Well, that's the first part of this, isn't it? The first part of this, Mm. which was published in 2016. Mm. And um, that story won the the Theodore Sturgeon Award in 2017. And as you say, it's been included as the first part of this novella. I enjoyed that story quite a lot. 
Not so much this one. Um, I I just felt that, as you were saying earlier on, there's a lot of standing around talking for no and for not much impact and not much effect. And um, she does talk a lot about uh, what, uh, where she lives and what she likes and what she does. Um, that goes on and on and on and on until she does actually find this um, uh, AI and is able to power it up. And then things start to move. And so there's a big slab of this particular novella where I thought, um, yeah, this is all very interesting, but where are we going with it? Um, it just seems like a heck of a lot of padding to me. But And I, I, I struggled to get through some of that because I thought, oh, not this again, over and over and over again. And um, then it got interesting near the end. Uh, but uh, yeah, not my favourite of the lot because of that. No, that's that's fair enough. It, it's true. There's not a lot of action in it, but but it's it's a as, as I say, it's very much a character driven mm. thing. Um, it's very interesting that you picked up that thing about the, the Shirley Jackson story because I didn't know that because I hadn't read the Shirley Jackson um, uh, uh, the novel. So that's that is an interesting um, piece that I haven't seen. I actually haven't seen anybody else mentioning that. Either I may just be wrong, but uh, it, it well, seems to no. me that first paragraph seems to me to be just perfectly based on on the, the Shirley Jackson so know, formula. The name, there, what was what was the, the name of the Jackson title? Uh, the book. The book is called "We Have Always Lived in the Castle," and, yeah. and, and there's a kind of enormous link there too. Because yeah, there is too the, because the, they're in Garbage Town. Yeah, yeah because the, the castle that that Mary Cat lives in is is a ruined, burnt out house. Well, it is by the end of the end of the novel, anyway, and so it, it's been devastated, and, and she lives in this devastated environment, and and uh, like like uh, like Tetley, Mary Cat has done something terrible in her past. Well, in fact, it gets blamed on someone on someone else. It gets blamed on her sister, but she has done something terrible in her past, and people in the town, everyone in the town, hates the family, and Mary Cat is part of that. So there's, there's definitely similarities. Whether it's deliberate or not, I don't know. But I, I certainly saw saw those um, saw those parallels. And I mm. just, I say, to me, it was a character based thing. I just liked the character. Now, I hadn't now, previously re- read the uh, the first part. Uh, this was the first time I've read uh, any of it. So um, interesting that you say that the the first part um, came out a few years ago and did well mm. on its own. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, uh, well, I got nominated for a few awards as well. Didn't win any. Well, I won the Sturgeon Award, uh, but. I don't look. I don't have any problem about uh, Valente picking up on the Jackson. Oh no, that's good idea and structure, and placing it into a completely different environment, and then examining it in that new environment. I don't have a difficulty with that. In fact, I think the the story actually takes a a bit of a step up because she's actually done that. Well, if she has, it's, it's my interpretation. But but whether she whether she has or not... It's a good interpretation, though, David. Yeah, I'm yeah. quite impressed with this. No, I, think right. yeah. I think you've tweaked onto Regardless, something here. It, it, it spoke to me that way. Anyway. Yeah, OK. I mean, the, the, there are things you can criticise about about the story. There's a... You've got to suspend your disbelief a fair bit, but that, that's okay. If, if you if you like a story, you can you can willingly suspend your disbelief. So I did anyway. All right. So there okay, we are. So we've, we've done the novels, novellas, well, well, novellas. Well, uh, well, just a bit of a final roundup. Um, you're of the view that uh, your vote will be for um, um, uh, the the past is read. Yep. By Valente, I would probably be voting. I'm going to be voting for um, a spindle splintered by Harrow. Yep. 
Uh, if you were to ask me what is going to win, because that's a different question. No, it is a different question. Uh, I'm, I actually think that it will be a choice between the past is red and a spindle splintered. Okay. Uh, because I'm hearing a lot of, I'm hearing a lot of really good uh, vibes about the Harrow, um, but uh, Valente's, yeah, I think it's got a lot of the elements that um, uh, a lot of voters would uh, would really really like. Hmm. Okay, there you go. So that'll be interesting to see how that goes. Indeed, which is good. That's good. Okay, well that finishes our discussion of the um, the shorter Hugo stories for the show. The, the Hugo finals for this uh, for this year. Um, we'll be dealing with the novels next time, if I can get through them all. I've um, I know you've you've done pretty well, David. I seem to be lagging and dragging my feet just a little bit. So yeah, I'm I'm halfway through the fifth one. Oh, okay. No, I've, I've got a long way to go. So I better get I better get my skates on and try and try and get through them. And so we'll be dealing with the novels in our next. Uh, episode, but we're not quite finished with this episode today because recently I had a discussion with our friend of the podcast, Rose Mitchell, about season two of Star Trek Picard. I'm not sure if you're aware, David, but there is actually um, uh, quite a lot of um, Star Trek and Star Wars material coming out at the moment. I mean, Disney have certainly um, picked up uh, picked up the ball with Star Wars and are doing quite a lot. There's been a couple two seasons of Mandalorian. Uh, there's been a uh, there's a Obi Wan Kenobi series uh, currently currently screening, uh, and there's been a couple of others, and including some uh, animated series as well. Star Wars and Star Trek, both of them are now going with the idea of filling in a lot of the background in terms of uh, what's been there, what's what's available, uh, picking up some of the stories that were sort of left hanging from some of the um, original um, seasons. So Jean-Louis Picard, of course, played by Patrick Stewart, uh, was one of the major characters or if not the major character, in the second major series for Star Trek, Star Trek The Next Generation. And he's now, this is Patrick Stewart and Jean-Luc Picard, he's now 80. Uh, we had a season that was uh, broadcast about oh, two years ago, but uh, things got held up by the pandemic. But now we're back with season two. So I asked Rose what she thought of it. So, Rose, what did you think of it? Thank you, Perry. What a good question. Um, so, overall, um, I thought it was could have been two or three episodes shorter. I just thought they dragged out. They 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 stretched things a bit too much in the middle, didn't they? Yeah, there was a bit of padding in the middle, yeah. Um, and I thought that there was uh, too much emphasis on... Um, Picard's um, psychological issues with his mother and father. I mean, we all have issues with parents, but that was prayed over. So, hang on. Well, let's before we get down into the nitty gritty detail of it, because I I have a tendency to agree with you. I thought that I thought it started off well, it ended well, but there's a big slab in the middle where I thought it was rather too slow for me in terms of what they're attempting to get at. But how about we give a bit of an overview about what what happens in this one, in this particular series, and how it sort of differs from the first? Does it carry on from the first season? 
and give some detail about that. So do you have a um, synopsis of uh, what you think happened in this particular so, series? Uh, so what I think happened was that the writers decided to play to the Trekkies, mm-hmm. the Hadley. So it's a time, time, time and alternate universe um, series. It plays to the fans. I think they pulled in every trope that they could and every episode reference across all of the series, probably up until um, not so much Discovery, didn't do Discovery, but to Voyager. Um, So Picard, once again, an 80-year-old man, has to save the world. Shit happens. Um, They get pushed into an alternate, the the mirror mirror universe. People, um, so the crew change roles, uh, Q comes into it. We also get to, um, at some point there's some um, time travel. So, uh, so Q does a thing like he did in Tapestry, snaps them all back to to some point where history digresses. They they all look about regrets and things that they, they should have done and what makes that point, that decision, um, Yes, no, left, right changes the paths of, of of your history or your timeline. Some stuff gets blown up. Uh, Brett Spiner comes back, but he comes back as Adam Sung. Um, probably giving lots of spoilers away, but it's been many, many months since this was published um, or aired. Um, and between Stuart. Delancey and Spiner, they just chewed up scenery right, left and centre. <laughs> Who's the best actor? There is there is a bit of that self-overindulgent uh, um, wallowing in uh, some of the characters here. There is. Yeah, uh, so just, 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 just to oh, get Oh, and the Borg, the Borg comes into it. Um, so we get lots of... Re- it's a real mishmash, isn't it? There's a lot of there's a lot of Star Trek pieces in this. They pulled in everything, everything yeah, they could. And in some ways, I think they've actually pulled in far too much. I mean, I have to admit that every single one of the Star Trek, either movies or TV episodes that I've ever seen that has used time travel, has never worked for me. No, it's, it's never not. seemed to work. It just basically, it just seems to be they throw this in as a. As it means, oh, we've got a problem. Oh, let's go back in time and fix it, and therefore we won't have the problem anymore. And it's like, mm, no, I don't quite get that myself. Yeah, as Miles O'Brien said, um, so is it time? Quantum physics gives me a headache. Yep, well, it does that to everybody else as it well. Does so. That. So, um, and I think, um, so basically it's save, save, save humanity, once again, save humanity from the Borg. And all all this happens. Um, lots of things get blown up. People die. People don't die. In the end, well, typical typical Star Trek. Well, all's well with the world. Happy ending ending ever after. Yep. Um, so with the Borg, the, the the way they've changed the the canon this in this one is that the Borg will become a member of the Fed or applies for membership of the Federation. All right. Yeah, that's a big change. That is a big change. So next time, so they, when they do a season three or with any of the other series or any planned series that come forward, they're going to find a new enemy. So they made friends with the Klingons. They made friends with the Kardashians. 
Now they're mates with the Borg. They made mates with the Dominion or made peace with the Dominion, not so much mates, but is there going to be another enemy? Of course, they're going to have to have another enemy. Uh, they'll have somebody coming in from outside the galaxy probably. That'll that'll stir everything up. But um, So overall, Harry, uh, it's I gave it 7 out of 10. Oh, okay. It's one for the fans because I've got pages of little notes of when the episodes have most of the references. All right, okay. Yeah, I mean, they've always... I must admit that is one thing that they have done with this, and even me not being a big Star Trek aficionado, even I pick up some of the little bits and pieces that they've got, but there must be little background references and stuff on the side and um, bits and pieces around all over the place where um, the dedicated fans are going to go, oh, look at that. That's fantastic, adding that in. And that makes sense because it sort of ripples all the way right through to all the other series. Oh, that's where that comes from and that sort of stuff. And I, I like that. I think that's very good because what that does is it says, we're not doing something just out in the middle of nowhere and we're just going to change the whole canon. We have to um, we understand that there is this universe that a lot of people like and we have to be respectful of it, but let's have a little bit of fun with it and put a few little bits and pieces in here and there so that those that really know something will get a little bit of extra enjoyment out of it by picking some of that stuff up. And I'd have no difficulty about that at all because it means that me, who doesn't know this stuff, who misses all of those preferences. I don't lose anything out of it. It's just other people gain a little bit more. And yeah. that's good. Well, during the next generation, during the um, the creation and filming of the next generation, there was actually a whole department that was about continuity and not breaking the canon. Yep. So the writers would come up with the, the idea, the script, and then those people, a bit like auditors, would go <laughs> over it. <laughs> to make sure that they weren't breaking canon, for God forbid. You think the, the Twitterverse is insane. Um, Trek fans, are, are Trekkies are worse. You you do something wrong and it comes it comes down on the producers like a, a an oncoming freight train. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of a lot of things they have to be careful of with that is that you don't completely stuff a character up by changing everything they've done in the past. But it's also going to be mindful of the fact that some characters are really um, integrated with a particular actor. Like, for example, you can never see anybody else playing um, Jean-Luc Picard, right, except Patrick Stewart. That's it. And so the whole reason for me for this particular for this particular set of series. So they've had two so far and it looks like they've announced the third one coming up and that will be the last, is that they want to finish off Jean-Luc Picard. So here's a spoiler right up front. Very last episode of season three, I think he carks it. Yes. I think that what they'll do is they'll just finish it all off. <clears throat> they did this with, um, remember, I mean, the two major, the two major genre characters that um, uh, Patrick Stewart's played, uh, Jean-Luc Picard and Charles Xavier in the X-Men stuff. And in the X-Men stuff, they finish that with Logan, where right at the very end he's got dementia and he's dying, and they finished it all off there. And I think that's I think that is an excellent way of doing it. I know um 
Uh, I don't want to give this too much of this away because this is another thing that sort of ripples around all over the place. But and I know that uh, the Xavier character has appeared in other um, Marvel Universe stuff and probably will appear in other Universe stuff. But what we're doing is he doesn't want to play this in a this role anymore for a long term. And Stewart's in his 80s. He must be feeling as though he's getting the end where he thinks, well, you know. I did um I did pick up on in some of the um the scenes that Stuart I think um because Picard is the hero in this he's the yeah. leader of the of the um oh I've forgotten the name of the ship the Le, whatever whatever the name of the ship is um it's not the captain it's the admiral and um. And and he's doing all this daring do, and I kept thinking, oh, this is just unfeasible. He's in his eighties. God, I can barely get off the couch, let alone <laughs> swing around, do do all sorts of fighting. And there was a scenes where there was just a, a, just a couple of seconds of him looking feeble, and I thought that was really good. And I, that was probably Stuart's idea because he's, um, he's setting it up. He's setting he up. He wants. Up. He, yeah. you, you can certainly understand it. I mean, if you think of um, Stuart, as I said, he's had he's been playing this character on and off for quite some quite some years. It's quite. Um, it's quite obvious, now I think it's, it's so obvious, filming in eighty six. So okay, so it's obviously one of his favourites, and so therefore he wants to see it reach a good ending all the way right through. Now, as as. As as we said when we discussed this last time for season one, the story went that he didn't want to do anything anything more in this particular um, with this particular character until um, uh, Michael Shabon and his other uh, co executives or producers came to uh, Stuart with a script and said, "Here, what do you think of this?" Oh, I'm not really interested, but he read it anyway and then called him up and said, "Yep, this sounds good. I want to do it." Um, but they would have already then, right from the very beginning, said this is going to be limited. It's not going to go on for terribly long. So it's going to do three seasons and that's going to be the totality of it. And I think I, I, I think it's um I think it, the whole idea is excellent. I I enjoy this because I'm I must admit, I do actually like watching older people playing roles and I do maybe because it's my age Rose I'm not sure but I do actually like the fact that they are allowing people of a certain age to be playing themselves at that particular age which but I think could, is a good thing but Perry that could also be that um so so it's all so it's the boomers remember we're boomers oh yeah yeah yeah, and, yeah and, true so we just we just make it happen we yep. make do it just the same as we did in in our own histories we wanted childcare we wanted to work and have childcare we've got that we've got tax breaks for doing that oh we wanted to do have investment properties we made the government do that <laughs> i'm getting a bit political here but um, <laughs> no, but it is good to see boomers did so and we see it with um older actresses demanding and they're getting it yep. um roles well, well I've just I just started watching recently the other uh, one of the other um, uh, science fictional um, series on Night Sky, which has got Sissy Spacek playing, who must be in her mid seventies, playing a woman who's in her mid seventies and not very well. And I think that's excellent. And I think you're just basically picking people that um, this is interesting stuff because it's a lot of this stuff you don't see. Um, you know, you know Anthony Hopkins playing the father with dementia. Uh, yeah. That he won an Academy Award for. I mean, this is 
this is all all good and interesting stuff to happen. But getting back to the Star Trek thing, because we're sort of moving off onto sort of age of oh, aging actors all over sure, the place. Surely, surely not. <laughs> I think there's also a thing that not only is Patrick Stewart sort of completely associated with um, with um, uh, uh, Jean Luc Picard, but the actor playing Q is also the same, and that's obviously coming to an end uh, from this as well. Well, there's sort of plot point, and that is that that. Q also has to face um, his mortality for for what it is. Um, we don't know what um, that is really because he's not really. really we don't know what he's, that really. He's not really mortal, is he? He's something else. Yeah. But he's he's if you like uh, going to cease to exist at some stage uh, further yeah. down the track, and he's fully aware that that's going to happen, and he's not really ready for it. No, and, so, and what um, he's he's doing is what my takeout away from it all was what he's doing was he's he was going back over his past life and and finding um finding the answers that he didn't get um but one of them i always thought was this because there's lots of scenes between um q and picard and their final scene where they almost kiss and i'm thinking yes i always thought that that q was in love with picard well he did say even gods have their favorites yes and that's a, that was a very interesting line at the end. I thought I thought that was um, uh, I thought it was quite well done. Mm. But we, we were but we were chatting. So we talked about a lot of the good stuff that's gone on with this. And we were chatting a bit before we got um, got started with this particular interview uh, recording, and we both said that we had a gap in the middle of our watching of this. That's... I watched about seven episodes, and then probably had oh, a month, six weeks before I got back and finished the last three off. I was the same, actually. I got to I got to five, and um and I never went back to it for about a month. Yeah, yeah, about a month, and um and I just um it was at a point that was the point where the introspect about his mother and the, and the walking through many rooms and lost in the labyrinth under his vineyard and all of that, and it's like mm, a bit bored now. Yeah, it just kept on going on That's a bit too they, much. Yeah, they could have done that scene, but perhaps perhaps brought it back to for for the for the examination of it within one episode, maybe. Yeah. Not to keep going on. Yeah, I think you're probably right there. I think that there is this sort of uh, it's a dull period in in the middle, and it it's slower than the first season, which is okay, and I'm not criticizing it for that. Uh, but I just think with so many things and so many characters coming back because the um, the Whoopi Goldberg character comes back as well mm. and um, you get introduced to her back in our current time or 2024 or 2024. I had, I had a real, uh, that, that was that was a sticking point for me. I was yelling at the telly about this one. Okay. What was that? So um, and then I had to rationalise with myself. I argued with myself as a Trekkie over it, actually. <laughs> Um, things are really going bad. Um, um, so, so in twenty twenty four, Picard and and is is off looking for um, the the Watcher or something. So he eventually finds um, the Guinan character, and he doesn't recognise her in twenty twenty four. But in um, an episode, double episode of Next Gen called Time's Arrow. He meets the Guinan character in the late 1900s, early 
early 20th century in San Francisco. So to my it stuck to me, he should have recognised it. But my rationale was that, oh, they may be in a different unit, in an alternate universe, and so that part hasn't happened. Big stretch. Mm, yes. Yeah, you're trying to sort of justify a possible mistake a plot, there, I think. A, yeah, plot, plot, uh, plot glitch there. Yeah. So that, that glitched to me. And and the character, the young Guinan, didn't, didn't resonate with me for the older Guinan I'd met during Next Generation. Oh, okay. So I thought that that, that one wasn't well thought out. All right. Okay. But it's interesting that they are, again, bringing a lot of these characters back and um, it's, a, it's a real run-through of a lot of those and it'll be interesting to see uh, who they bring back in the uh, in the next season. I think, season yeah. I, I think they're going back to the Next Generation crew mainly. So it'll be interesting to see um, uh, who they talk well, to. Well, they jammed um, they jammed Wesley Crusher in in the last episode. I mean, that yeah. was that was to me that was um, uh, that was Tick, pointless. Was pointless. Ticking, ticking a box for really not very yeah. much. It was gratuitous. Oh, let's let's give Will Wheaton some uh, a part. Yeah, gratuitous. It, it was yeah, and um, I know there's always been lots of criticism about the Will Wheaton. Uh, the, or the Wesley Crusher character. Um, that here's this kid, you know, genius, which may well have been in the 24th century. My thing about the 24th century was everyone was a high achiever. We were all low achievers. And good looking. And good looking. <laughs> God. Um, but um, but uh, some of the, the flack he copped, I didn't think was, was really warranted. Saved the day a couple of times. He also caused the problems a couple of times. Yeah, well, that's what everybody a, does. Which is a plot point. Yeah. <laughs> so, but um, but that scene at the end was just gratuitous. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit. Um, that's just one of the things I think. You know, again, they were just trying to clear up and finalise a few bits and pieces here and there. So anyway, yeah. so overall, you gave it a seven. Yeah. yeah, yeah probably, but that's- if out of ten, I'd probably give it somewhere between. Six and seven, I think. Yeah, probably more towards seven. Yeah. I wouldn't give it much higher than that. I probably gave um, the first season probably a point higher. Um, yeah, I thought the first season was 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 more much better story. Yeah, it moved. Uh, it it moved, moved along. Yeah, it, yeah, it moves along episode. quite well, and um, uh, it had some interesting things to say and some interesting well, things. That, so I'm um, thinking of it as, as as I'm thinking of it as. Like in a, in a book trilogy, oh, the publishers have made the author fill out a bit in the, in the second book. So this is the uh, this is the middle the middle book, middle of, book. A, of, of a trilogy, <laughs> which has a tendency mostly to be um, a little bit padding. on the padding and flat. And all you're doing is just sitting there waiting for the next season to turn up. Yep, which is pretty much what which is pretty much what we're doing. And um, I believe that uh, uh, the next season will be out. Next year, I mean, I know they had a bit of a hiatus because of the uh, COVID problems, so which is why this one's taken oh, a year and a half, two years to come out. But I believe the next one's going to be coming out in twelve months. Okay, well, I'm um, I'm invested in seeing what they do with the Borg. Yep, because they were, I mean, they were an insidious enemy, 
And um, and they realised this fairly early on, actually, because they made them invincible, and then they were in, they were in real trouble. So they <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it's a bit like it's a bit like Superman. Superman, I, I always found pretty boring because he was so um, he was so invincible, and which is why they had to introduce all those different types of kryptonite, which <laughs> I thought was a real uh, bloody stupid yeah. idea. That's why I always thought Batman was a lot better because he was. It was human and mortal, and therefore um, much more vulnerable. Yeah. You need to have you need to have your enemies strong, but also um, not invincible. If they are, well, then they're just all well, falls apart. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. this may well be um, a change of direction for that particular um, set of characters, and it's um, interesting to see what they did with it. Yes, I think it, I, I'm looking forward to that part of it, hmm. and. Um, and perhaps um, Picard playing a lesser role in being the hero because now it's, it's this this season actually has brought out some strengths in the other crew members, particularly Seven. Uh, she got to examine her humanity much deeper because in the uh, in the time traveling alternate universe thingy she lost her Borgness, although the Borg queen, queen recognized her. Oh yeah, <laughs> but um, um, and the captain, mm, I don't know. I think he's a bit of comic relief. Well, yep, he may not be in the next season again, so I think he's probably done. But um, so overall, I think we enjoyed it. Um, looking forward to the next season uh, to see where that goes. Uh, I think three seasons will be enough. I carrying on further than that, I think will just be. Uh, pretty much a waste of time. Um, yeah, well. but well, it's it's been it look look. I said it is an interesting exercise and an interesting thing to watch. Uh, it's very good to look at. I mean, they have spent a large amount of money on the production of this, and the CGI stuff is pretty damn good. It was, and Picard's vineyard, isn't it lovely? Yeah, I wouldn't mind hanging out there for a little while. That'd be all right. So why, he's, uh, is, why isn't he satisfied with just you know, in his retirement? Well, things are just sort of digging at him, I think, and sort of um, coming up from uh, the well. It's a bit like the, well, the rest of us as we get older. You sort of look back on your life and think, hmm, should I get back in contact with that person to try and figure something out? And most of the time the answer to that is no, do not. <laughs> Let sleeping dogs lie. But in this instance, um, I think it's, yeah. worked, it's worked okay. Yeah. So, Any, anything further you want to add about this? Uh, just, just I hope Paramount doesn't milk it too much. So, yeah. you know, I think we all agree. I think most fans are agreeing as well that that this is a finite story, yep. and that Paramount doesn't stretch it out because it's 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 want to do that. So something's coming to an end. So they create another series. So as you and I just talked about before the episode we started recording, was um was the new the new one, um, Star Trek: uh, New Worlds. New Worlds, um, which has had some good, good um, reviews. I haven't got to it except for a brief entry into the first episode. But then, I mean, they did Discovery, and oh, that was woeful. This will be a controversy. Perry, I'll have all these people now. Now, well, um, I, I can tell you that I, 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 I thought it. I thought it jumped the shark at the end of the first season, and I couldn't carry on any further when it moved into the. Alternate universe. I thought, right, that's it. I'm done. Yes. Why can't you just stay in the same bloody universe and just keep on having the story going straight along? You know, just do that. Mm-hmm. Why do you have to go over here and just change everything completely? Mm-hmm. And someone, oh, no. or, or the captain turned out to be a Cleon. I mean, oh. no, <laughs> no, no, no. 
Yes. Okay. Well, we won't talk about that one, but maybe in the future we'll have a, have a look at um, New Worlds. As you say, people are saying that it um, has the sort of feel of the first original series, which may be a good thing, maybe not, but uh, with uh, better, better special effects and probably better writing. But uh, it would be interesting to have a look at that sometime in the future. So maybe later on in the year we'll have a chat about that after we've yeah. um, had a chance to watch it. I'd be delighted. All right. Okay. Well, thank you, Rose. Thank you very much for that chat. That's good. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And thanks very much to Rose for that discussion. It's always uh, always good. Rose Rose is one of these people that came into fandom through um, her uh, interest and love of Star Trek, uh, but has um, expanded that interest to um, uh, lots of other parts of the science fiction and fantasy genres, but still maintains a healthy interest and a healthy like of the Star Trek um, Star Trek material. So it's uh, good to be able to talk to her because she comes from a, with a lot of knowledge of. Uh, all of that universe, which is good to have. So I think we're done for the I week. I think we might well be. Oh, right. So that's good. So as I said earlier, next episode, we'll be dealing with the novels, the six novels on the ballot for the Hugo Award. Uh, and we'll work our way through those. Um, I'll try and get through enough to be able to talk about three of them. And I know David's read so many of them, he can talk about all of them. I certainly will have read five, but now, now I discover that the one that I haven't yet read, I haven't yet started, uh, is a sequel to a book which everybody tells me I've got to read first before I... So if I'm going to do it, I'm going to have to read two more books. Two more books. It's like seven novels uh, instead and of six. Desolate. And a desolation called Peace is 500, no, 500 pages. Oh, terrific. And it's um, quite dense in the first 100 pages. It takes a while to get through that first 100. And then it starts to move no, a lot right, better. Well, I'll give it a whirl. We'll see. I may not get through it. That, that, might, be, that might be the one I, that I... I that might be the on. one you skip. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can't, and then you pick it up later on if it wins and you can make sure that you um, uh, cover, cover the... Um, the gaps in your uh, science fictional education, David. Yeah, maybe. After this year, I feel up to speed with current, current SF, uh, at least as it appears on the awards list, which is not necessarily the best of SF as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, no, I, probably, I, I would, tend, would tend to agree. It's interesting. It'll be interesting to figure out whether these are really the best stories that are available, which I don't really think no, well, is the case. Well, the, let's, the fact let's, that, let's hope not. The fact that Bewilderment didn't get on the Hugo list strikes me as being a clear sign that not, not all the best SF is going on lists. No, we do. Uh, we have to go with the idea that this basically definitely is a popularity contest and is not a best of. Um, well, the, that the, is, the, uh, the, t- the test will be next year and we'll see whether uh, Cloud Cuckoo Land and uh, Sea of Tranquility end up on the Hugo list or not. True, Sea of Tranquility might. Well, yeah, Sea of Tranquility would be the interesting one to see whether that's um, going to get up because uh, that's one that you've read and you have um, uh, uh, have uh, quite enjoyed. But maybe we can get you to talk about that in um, a couple of episodes' time after we've got through the... the um, Hugo novels. After we've got through the Hugo novels, yeah. Indeed. All right, OK. Thank you, David. No worries. We will talk to you next time. Indeed. All right, thank you.